Now, I don't know about you, but as I look on what's happening all around us, we seem to go from one crisis to another. We've uh, escaped uh, one uh, issue, and we're just heading into another. There's a, a deep sense of unease. It's like society is struggling to hang together while the pressure is for it to fall apart. And Isaiah was looking even more deeply into the societal disintegration that, that we fear today. He saw it actually happening in his own day, or he was prophetically he saw that that's what was going to happen and was warning the people about it. But he saw more. He saw what God was going to do, that God wasn't absent when all this was happening. God was at work both in the things that are terrible and the things that are beautiful. Yes, he brings loss as a means of discipline, but he also brings blessing and unimaginable gain. This whole section of the prophecy we started looking at chapter 2 last time uh, really is, is bookended with the end of chapter 4, that short chapter that we read earlier on, with two big thoughts, two big prophecies, if you like. The first is the idea that ultimately Israel's purpose to be a light to the nations is going to be fulfilled. God is going to use his people to draw the peoples, the nations, to God and be united with his people. And secondly, in verses 2 to 6 of the short chapter, chapter 4, God is not going to abandon his people. Or put it this way, he's not just going to visit them in judgment, he's also going to visit them in renewal and redemption as well. And in language that parallels very much the, the exodus when God tabernacled among his people, that's the promise that we see here. But in between, God speaks bluntly about the mess that the people are in right now, the spiritual mess that they have created for themselves. And he confronts them with the reality of what they're doing that they think he probably doesn't see and what he's going to do about it. But all the time he interweaves this idea of grace. He is going to bless the whole world. He is moving history towards this great day of the Lord when he will finally reveal himself. And in this section here, it's as though Isaiah is using cosmic weighing scales, measuring out the reality of what's happening in this snapshot of, of, of the history of God's people. So there's, there's three things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, the, the, the loss that's going to be involved when God removes all forms of societal stability. And as we look at these things that, were, that God's people were warned about so long ago, they have a, an echo in what's happening with us today. Secondly, God's going to remove all the arrogant displays of affluence. You know, rather than affluence producing what it should produce, spiritual gratitude, very often it produces spiritual hardness of heart. It doesn't have to, but very often it does. And last, we're going to look at this wonderful promise. The Lord will create true beauty and true security uh, for his people in the coming of this mysterious figure who's uh, called uh, the branch. So let's start then in the first three verses the people are warned that God's going to bring a discipline that's going to affect every area of their life. And they're, they're going to be challenged to see God's hand in this. This is not just stuff that happens. 
God is bringing these things as a means of discipline to challenge them, to refine them, and ultimately to bring them back to uh, himself. And in verse 1, uh, he's going to take away from Jerusalem and uh, Judah stock and store, bread and water, the very fundamentals of material well-being, not just the luxuries, but the things which make life possible. The things that they take for granted are going to be taken uh, away. But not only are those things going to be taken away, the, the, the societal pillars of stability are going to be shaken as well. He's going to remove the, the people who provide good leadership uh, for the people, the mighty men, the judges, the prophets, the elders, the captains, the honorable men, and so on. They refuse to give God glory for these material and societal blessings. And now God is going to take them uh, away. And this discipline that God is, is bringing is meant to, to, to speak uh, to the people very, very clearly. Look at verse, verses 4, verse 5, and verse 12 for uh, a moment. In verse 4, he says, I will give children to be their princes. Babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, every one by another and every one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent towards the elder the base towards the honorable. Verse 12, as for my people, children are their oppressors. Women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. So not only are good leaders going to be removed, but there will be a, a, per, a perversion of leadership, if you like, in this vacuum. God's judgment, having removed the leadership that people actually need because they didn't appreciate it, reverses the natural God-ordained uh, order. And so they will be plagued with being led by the, the immature, the selfish, and so on. Youth will be exalted, and instead of submitting to their elders, they will be the ones who are telling the elders what to do. I couldn't help but think of poor Greta Thunberg when I was reading this here. That this is our society today, isn't it? You know, instead of the leaders leading... They're, they're looking to the, the people who don't actually know anything and, 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 and looking to them. Leadership will be oppressive as everyone feels uh, that he or she wants to be in control. And I've called it here a, a hyper-democracy will replace uh, godly leadership. The people will be oppressed, everyone by another, everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent and so on. And stepping into a little bit of controversy here, women will be given a leadership role which God hasn't ordained simply because it seems right to the people. It seems, well, this is what we need to do. And this is a sign from God that they are under his discipline. So when leadership becomes giving the people what they want rather than leading them where they need to go, it's not a sign that... Uh, God's judgment may come, it's a sign that God's judgment has already uh, arrived. So, if you like, the, the God-ordained order of uh, society, the God-ordained order of, of people getting what they need, be it in the physical realm, in the societal realm, is, is reversed. And as people seek to deal with it, verses 6 and 7, it says it's not going to be all that easy. 
when a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have clothing, you be our ruler, let these ruins be under your power. You know, things are so bad, my goodness, will you, will you do something about it? But nobody's volunteering. In that day, he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for my house is neither food nor clothing. I'm in the same position that you're in. Don't make me a ruler over uh, the people. You know, it's much easier to, to dismantle God's way of doing things than it is to, to replace them. So when God disciplines in this way, and Isaiah is saying, look, this is, this is where you're going if you continue in this way. The people are so disheartened. Leadership is so debased that it no longer seems as something to be desired or, or, or unresponsibly uh, exercised. And you can't help but contrast this with the, the high value that God actually places on spiritual leadership. If you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where he talks about leadership in the church, how it's not meant to be modeled on leadership in society, but, but rather modeled on, on leadership on, on, on the, the, the functioning uh, family. So, so there's a great value placed on leadership, both in the home, in the church, and in wider society. And yet all of this is, is dissolving, disintegrating, and becoming perverse uh, as, as, as judgment is coming on uh, the people. And as we said at the beginning, this isn't just some unfortunate thing that happens. This is the result of choices, spiritual choices, that people uh, have made. You know, and as we're talking to our friends and they're maybe wondering, why, why is our society going the way that it's going? You know, I think we have to have a, a, a boldness to say, well, look, we, we've made choices along the way. We've made choices to fly in the face of God. You know, we've made choices to, to debase marriage, to, to destroy the, the children in the womb, and then we wonder that our society spins out of control and judgment and discipline comes uh, from on high. So Judah must face the fact that this is the consequence of abandoning God and his ways. In verse 8, for example, he talks about the sins of the word, speaking against what God has said. You know, and, and, you know, so much of our society today, we don't have to labor this point, is in direct contradiction to what God says in his word. But not only is that happening in society at large, as we look around in many churches, uh, it happens as well. Well, I know God's word says this, but you know, in the times we live in today, we have to, to move on. That the places where God's word should be honored, where God's word should sound forth out into society are actually uh, affected by what's happening in society. And God's all-seeing, all-knowing presence is provoked by such sin that he must, he will, he inevitably rises up to defend his own uh, glory. Look at verse 8 again. Jerusalem stumbled, Judah has fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. Uh, what a wonderful picture this here is, that, that God's all-knowingness defends his, his glory. God sees all things, and, and his glory, the glory of the God who is love, must be defended and will be defended by God uh, himself. And the sin reaches such depth that not only is there 
no shame or acknowledgement of it as sin, but with open, hard, proud faces, the, the people of Judah and Jerusalem seek to even face down God himself. Again, look at verse 9. They look on their countenance with, they, they look, the, sorry, the look on their countenance, look on their face, witnesses against them. They declare their sin as Sodom. You remember in, in Sodom, uh, when, when Lot uh, re rebuked the, the men of Sodom, and they said, who is this fellow who has come in to be a judge over us? We've taken him in, and now he is going to be a judge over us. The, the, the hard-hearted, uh, no one's going to tell me what to do attitude. Did you not hide it? Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon uh, themselves. In verses 13 to the, the end, we see that this abuse of leadership deprives the most vulnerable of their rights. When society begins to disintegrate, the picture is not pretty. Look at verse uh, 13. The Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you've eaten up the vineyard. Plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts. This is not a victimless crime that those who should have been leading to, to, to vindicate the poor in society have been leading the way in depriving them uh, of their goods. Somebody noted that in the pandemic, there was a, a historic, unprecedented transfer of wealth from the poor and the middle classes to the, the super rich. Hardly accidental. But we're reminded here that God sees these things. And when people cleverly think that they're manipulating society for their benefit, it's a very short-lived benefit uh, indeed. And this love of luxury and the flaunting of it, particularly here by the women of Judah, is, is noticed and confronted uh, by God himself. Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking, mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery. And so the, the judgment then mirrors uh, the sin that they have involved themselves in. And instead of this flaunting of luxury, they will be brought down low. It's a hard section to read. It's a hard section to look at and say, well, Lord, what are you saying to us in uh, all uh, of this? But there's hope, isn't there? That the, the lack of leadership on the basis of those who should be leading God's people, not only is it noticed by God, not only are they rebuked for it, but God does not stand idly by parallel section that Michael read for us in Jeremiah 23 is where God confronts the, the leaders of Israel who he describes as the, the shepherds who haven't shepherded the sheep. The consequences have been dire, unjust, but God has noticed and God has a plan. He himself is going to come and shepherd his own sheep. He himself is going to send the righteous branch to do the work 
that needs to be done. And when we come to Isaiah 4.2, we have this wonderful prophecy of what God is going to do. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be a pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So God turns things around, and he turns things around by sending this figure described here as the branch. And Didi is probably that of, of, of an offshoot, the offshoot of the, 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 the tribe of, of Judah, of the descendants uh, of David. Pictured here as, as, as the branch, pictured as, the, remember, the, the shoot out of, of dry ground in Isaiah 53, described as the branch of righteousness in Jeremiah's uh, prophecy. And this, now, everything turns around, and the language here is as, as beautiful as the preceding language has been terrible. After all the, the painful disciplines, which are, are richly deserved and, and have to come, we're, we're almost saying, well, what happens next? And what happens next is wonderful. There are no further disciplines threatened. Instead, now God puts the focus not on what the spiritually neglectful, spiritually uh, rebellious people deserve, but what he is going to do in grace. God is now going to create something better, something new in place of what he has to take away from the rebellious people. And this idea of the, the branch of the Lord, as we said, is it, of course, a metaphor for the Messiah. And Isaiah here is contrasting the beautiful humility of the Messiah. He's a sprout, a twig, a branch growing from David's lineage. When he comes to verse 53, he says, we, you know, we took no note of him. The, the people uh, in, in Jerusalem are making sure you take note of them because they're, they're living in luxury. Uh, they're, they're displaying all their finery. You can't help but notice them and God does notice them for all the wrong reasons. Uh, but here is the one who is simply described as the branch. And the contrast with the absurd display of, of magnificence of, of the women of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem is very, very stark. Isaiah 53, we referred to it earlier. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So, the branch, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, when he comes, he replaces this outward false beauty with true beauty of character. He will be beautiful and glorious. And what is he going to do? It shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. So he's going to cleanse the people. His mission is going to be that of cleansing the people. These things which the people have indulged themselves in, they will bring discipline, but ultimately God's going to bring cleansing. He's going to purge the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. 
And then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Well, we don't have to wonder where that language comes from, do we? That's the language of the Exodus, isn't it? So there's going to have to be a new Exodus. But this isn't an Exodus from physical Egypt, nor is he primarily talking about the restoration from Babylon, although that will happen. I think he's talking here about a spiritual exodus. He's not talking about the physical transferring of the people from point A to point B. He's talking about the the spiritual transferring of the people from where they are now to where they need to be. And the discipline isn't going to fall on the ethnic people of Egypt, the discipline is going to fall on those who claim to be Israel but are not. As for my people, oh, sorry, verse, uh, I've lost my, 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 my train of thought now. But, um, sorry, verse, uh, go back to verse, or chapter 3. He says in verse 10, So the righteous, say to the righteous, it shall be well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. So when when the judgment comes, the Messiah will divide between those who claim to be his people and spiritually, transparently are not, and those who really are his people, who will prove themselves to be his people by acknowledging uh, him. And this will be like in the, uh, the, the, the Exodus, the presence of God. Look at the intimate picture that's given here. The Lord Yahweh will create above every dwelling place in Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there shall be a, a covering. Now the picture here is that the, the glory of God that they have despised that glory which would ultimately depart in the destruction of the temple will come back. But he doesn't talk about it coming back to another physical temple. He talks about it coming back in a more intimate way to the people in their families, in their assemblies, as people. The, the God of the Exodus will, will accomplish this new Exodus, just as he accomplished the previous Exodus, but he will be with them in an even more intimate way. And there will be a tabernacle for shade and daytime from the heat and a place of refuge for a shelter from the storm uh, and the rain. And the, the language that we see here at the end of chapter 4 is picked up, of course, in the last chapters of the book of Revelation, where it talks about the, the presence of God being a, a dwelling place for his people. And his presence will protect them and be a, a shade uh, and a refuge uh, for them. So what's the, the final picture we're, we're going to get from all of this? Well, I think the primary picture is this, that, that this new exodus is going to come. Obviously not because the people deserve it, but because they need it, and God is a God of grace. The prophecy dramatically turns when, we, when we're forced to face up to the, the worst things about God's people, 
we then are suddenly confronted with the, the graciousness uh, of God. And this is the pattern that we see throughout Scripture, isn't it? From, from Genesis 3, 15, uh, all the way through. Genesis 3, is, as God is expelling Adam and Eve from uh, the garden, he turns to Satan and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That even as God is facing, con confronting Adam and Eve, making them face up to their sin, he's promising uh, redemption. In Romans 5.20, Paul says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. God's law given on Mount Sinai to God's people. If you remember, it's very dramatically illustrated. Even in the giving of the law, as Moses is coming down from the mountain, the people are actually breaking the law before it even arrives. But does God give up? <laughs> no. The law entering shows how sinful the people actually are. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You know, sometimes people say, well, why does God allow evil? Why does God allow sin? One answer is, there's only one answer, but one answer is there's something we can only grasp about God and his grace and his goodness in the presence of evil at its worst. And that, of course, is illustrated above all at Calvary, isn't it? You know, if we were to ask, what is the most evil, perverse thing that mankind could ever do? It's what they did to Jesus. But in that is the greatest, most gracious, most loving thing that God ever did. Not two events, but the one event illustrating both truths. Or as Paul put it in Romans 5, 6 to 8, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. I think we're so familiar with that phrase that we don't have the sharp intake of breath that we should have. Christ died, if we said for his people, yeah, we could, that's true, by the way. <laughs> but this are his people, the ungodly. And Paul brings us to the, the very highest Olympian heights of human generosity and altruism. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, perhaps, for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Height, the depth. And this is what Isaiah is beginning to confront us with here. That this exodus that God is going to accomplish for the people will not be because they deserve it, but because that's what God is like. Because God does not give up on his people, even though we would understand very well why he might. Or to put it another way, we deserve to be given up on a <laughs> hundred times a day. We do. Or at least I do. 
But that's not what God does. And if you're here today or if you're listening and you're wondering what God is like, this is who God is. This is what he is like. So Jesus could say to anybody, as he still says today, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Son of Man hasn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so Isaiah confronts the people with the reality of their sin, the consequences of their sin. There's, there's nothing hidden. There's nowhere the searching light uh, of, of, of his challenge and his confrontation does not go. Yet he says, for all this, God's not giving up on his people. He is going to send this righteous branch, this descendant of David, to accomplish a new exodus. Not because people deserve it, but because they need it. As we come to the, the close of our, our, our time around God's word this morning, let's remind ourselves of these great truths. That if we're really, really honest, we are not the people that we should be. But our hope is not in who we are, but in who the God of Israel is, who the God of Isaiah is, who the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us.